Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to talk about, among other things, the content of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is basically our guide for the Christian cosmopolitan soul with a grace-infused passion for life to the contents of the world of the interwebs, which you can find on our website, mbird.com. Before we get to the contents of Another Week Ends, we are pleased and privileged to have Chris Batchelder, the author of a, a new novel which has gotten lots of great reviews in places like the New York Times and National Public Radio. His brand new novel is called The Throwback Special. I was privileged to have some time to talk with him. And now, Chris Batchelder. All right, for the first time uh, on our show, we have Chris Batchelder, who is the author of The Throwback Special. And this is an interesting novel. I've never read a novel about one football play being reenacted. So how did you come up with this concept for the novel? I mean, it's a pretty fascinating story. Uh, well, thanks. I um, saw the play uh, um, as a 14-year-old, and um, anybody who saw it, you know, the place stuck, stuck with them through the years. And I think it was, you know, probably five or six years ago, I started thinking about the play again and getting really interested in it and thinking there was something literary there. I didn't know what. And it took me some time to figure out um, uh, a way to approach it or to come at it. And, and I was coming at it pretty directly for a while and it wasn't working. And it was only when I thought to um, slide it slide it a little bit to the periphery or to the context and invented these guys who are, who are coming uh, every year to reenact the play. Once I, once I made that sort of imaginative move, um, the, the book really took off. And so the play, I mean, we're, we're talking about something that happened in 1985 where Joe Theismann uh, has his leg broken, a career-ending injury by Lawrence Taylor. Right, right. Just a horrific, horrific play a horrific thing to watch um like i say anybody who saw it you know never never forgets it um on the original broadcast it was on monday night football too so in front of millions of people um and famous players joe theisman and lawrence taylor were both really well-known players and um on the original sack you can't really see what happens but on the reverse angle it's a really really awful um shot of theisman's leg breaking in two yeah, so what's interesting is you have this group of guys in the novel that 22 guys annually that get together. And I love the way you sort of talk about the hotel they get together. It's 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 featured. It's got good reviews on bad and bad reviews. And some of the features are uh, the same feature as what they're known as good and bad reviews for at the hotel. And these guys get together and you give this kind of... Um, ambiguous like somewhere on i on 995 like so at least we're in the northeast carter or something right. but so is the ambiguity there you only use first names right and these guys right. are in midlife they're all around 40 um somewhere like around or just after theisman's age when uh his career was ended right. unexpectedly is the kind of ambiguity like 
so so that these guys do become every man i mean you could they could be anybody i grew up with yeah i mean i think that's a good point and um once i settled on this premise there's that excitement there's the honeymoon period of like oh yeah this is this could be really interesting i can this will generate material i can lean into this and then five seconds later i'm i realize um the major obstacle is going to be that I have 22 characters, you know, um, at least I end up having many more. So that's a trick, you know, for, for a novelist when you're, when you're um, used to thinking in terms of a protagonist, a central protagonist who drives the action. Uh, so I had 22 guys and that's exactly right. So I named them first names only. And um, I'm trying to create a kind of tribe i guess or or hive mentality uh, a group a group mentality a group of men so it's you're exactly right it's it's trying to um have readers to to some extent not think in terms of a central protagonist but to consider the group of men as the central protagonist or maybe even the ritual itself as the protagonist yeah and it's interesting because in you know a lot of authors in in sociology and uh religious studies have noted that like we are in a culture that's increasingly pluralistic that has fewer and fewer uh, shared narratives and rituals. Right? I mean, I think Nietzsche said the sacred is the only thing we all agree that we can't laugh at. And there's very little of that. So, And more and more as people are not raised in particular religious traditions or culture, they, they have to kind of invent their own. So it's amazing we have these kind of 22 guys and we don't even kind of know the origin story of it, right? Right. Which is fascinating for lots of rituals, right? There's probably rituals. I mean, uh, last Sunday was Easter Sunday. I mean, who the heck knows uh, what those first <laughs> dozens and dozens of Easter's were like? I mean, you know, we don't get pictures of what they were like until the second century. So it, it, it's like any great ritual tradition. You have these guys that we don't know exactly where it started, when, how the, but it's like they are so fastidious <laughs> in the way yeah. they in the way they like pick the what what player they're going to play you know in the reenactment yeah that's and so you know again i once i decided on this premise and i had this decision of um these decisions you you have to make from a central from a central decision and the decision there was do i want to have this be the first you know do, do, would do I want to show the origin of this? And I realized very quickly I wasn't interested in that at all and how they met or how they came together or how they decided to do this and how they developed the rules. Uh, I wanted them all assumed. So this is the 16th year, I think, that they're doing this. And I just wanted this um, this assumed set of rites and rituals and traditions that for the men is a kind of holy weekend. I don't think they quite understand what they're doing there, uh, but they know it's important. They feel it. And I wanted to live in those rituals without, um, you know, in the way that we live with rituals in our lives, we don't, we don't, we're not making them up. We're not thinking about them. We're just living them. And that's the, that's the place I wanted to inhabit in the book. Yeah. And as somebody who's, uh, I don't just uh, do this podcast, but I also uh, work as a working pastor in my day job. But uh, I, I think that's, in my experience, how a lot of people I've seen who are devoutly religiously observant in the best sense of the word right and but but in some sense like the the way that these things make sense don't always uh the heart has reasons that reason doesn't understand right pascal says and i think and, right. and then you beautifully kind of narrate that like in the novel and i think it's it's amazing how this ritual becomes also 
cathartic confessional. Uh, where you have and one of my favorite things is you have one of the characters who actually admits to. I, I feel bad for the psychologist character who has to kind of hear these armchair like confessions. And yeah. the, guy, the guy says, "Well, I told my wife I'm sexually curious about you know the female characters in my in, my, in, the, in the books we read to our children. I mean, right. they're adults and they're really women. They're not, and it's just so amazing that he probably." doesn't uh talk about that outside of that outside of the conversation with his wife outside of the context of that ritual right and um you know these men aren't friends really they're, but they're intimate and so i'm interested in a, a kind of intimacy without friendship they come together once a year and the, the assumption or the implication is that they don't see each other through the year either they're they're regathering and there's one character who He's a psychologist. He works with girls with eating disorders, but all the men end up seeking him out to talk about their issues, whether physical or emotional. Um, and I think, you know, if you, the guy who went to him talking about this issue, I, I doubt a week before he was thinking of the weekend in this way. It's almost as if they have to get fooled into, they come thinking it's about the play, but it's really about much more than that in ways that they probably like you say, didn't, didn't understand. And you know, the, I have a 10 year old daughter and about maybe a year ago or so when she was nine, she, she overheard me talking about the, the premise of the book to a friend. And she said, you know, dad, isn't, isn't that mean? And, um, I had to kind of quickly think of it from her perspective. Um, and it did seem mean all of a sudden, like they're celebrating this man's horrible injury. And so she was wrong, but the way in which she was wrong was really interesting. And it made me, um, just think that 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 it's not it's not callousness it's not meanness it's not um a kind of uh, contemporary lack of empathy or anything like that that are bringing them in together they take no joy in the injury it's uh it's again it's a it's a nearly religious observance and again they're they're getting something from the weekend that they don't that they don't quite understand but that is very real or that's that's trying to answer some some very real need yeah and it's it's so interesting right is that they have this like they are so uh particular in the details of how you pick the players and all these things it and, and it's such a controlled thing to celebrate one of like a life's uncontrollable chaotic moments that exposes the fragility of even a superstar a guy who's in the top of his game and didn't think that was going to be his last game and these guys all i love the line you have about how at this time at this age, uh, these guys quickly uh, add or, or, or subtract things like weight or God or habits. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. so it, it's weird that they're – it's almost like this uh, this you know fastidious attention to like the way you, you sell, these guys celebrate the ritual actually frees them up for the chaos they really are experiencing – every year in their lives in ways that are increasingly probably scary and, and, and uh, unexpected. Definitely. I think that's the appeal to them for, to some extent, that's the meaning of the ritual or the tradition to some extent that they even understand it has to do with controlling, controlling these tiny um, elements that they can control. Do they have, you know, some of them are really in, interested in having the right uniform choices. Do they have the right wristbands or do they have the right, you know, uh, cleats and socks and tape? Um, are they historically accurate? And they, 
that this has to do with control. And, you know, I've said this before, but I think the play, if the play represents something, it represents our lack of control, the, the chaos in our lives, the contingency in our lives. And so for them to come together and do this really careful and, as you say, fastidiously controlled thing um, about something that really represents our lack of control, I don't know, has always struck me as a kind of... Um, uh, I've called it primitive, but I don't mean that in a pejorative sense because you can say primitive is um, fundamental or essential. It speaks to something. It's as if they're it's um, primal, a right? primal, primal. Exactly, yeah. it's better than primitive. That it, and it's a sort of an off. It's a it's a kind of ritual sacrifice in a way, up to the gods or something. You know, to um, uh, almost as if for protection or something. Yeah, it's like in in the kind of modern, you know, world we live in where a lot of times we kind of do look maybe pejoratively back on pre-modern observances or whatever. But without them, we have to reinvent them. Right, right. <laughs> and you have these 22 guys who, who who have created this whole piety and this whole fascinating, like, cult and, and, and imagination and tradition. Uh, and, and, and they're not – I mean, these guys are not, like um, – religious or cultural geniuses but yet they kind of they just kind of develop this tradition in a way that they all buy into it and it becomes i mean stanley harawas at duke um an ethicist says you know the things about tradition is they're really powerful traditions are powerful not when you choose them but when they choose you mm -hmm. so somehow these guys seem to have constructed something that actually chose them in the process yeah i think that's right and i think honestly i think sometimes um, writing can be smarter than the writer. I think a premise can be smarter than the writer. I think I, I got lucky in, in thinking about a premise that just really, to me, had literary energy and power around it. But I, I like the men, I don't think I understood it either. I was showing up at the hotel every day on my laptop, you know, um, thinking I was coming for a football play, but I was coming for something different as well. Um, and so I think I got... To the extent the book works, I got fortunate in, in finding uh, a premise that, that, that went deeper than I imagined. Um, and that has to do with what you're talking about, that the, that the tradition found them, and in a way it found me as well, I think. You know, it's interesting. I think about like the character um, uh, Derek, right, who's mixed race. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he is it, – it's interesting because uh, for those – of our listeners. And I encourage you all to read the book because it's, it's a great read. It's a fun read and it's an existential reflection. I mean, there are very few books that are fun and not torturous reads that are actually also existential mirrors. And I mean, I feel like you've achieved that here, okay. um, but Derek is mixed race and he's, he's wondering if he's going to have to get to the place where he'll have to choose to be Lawrence Taylor. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Uh, there was a moment I remember thinking to myself, am I really going to have these 22 guys be all white, you know? And I, and I kind of rolled out my eyes at myself. Um, I have to do better than this. I have, it's not, and it's not as if I made it radically diverse, but I introduced Derek as a way to challenge myself a little bit. And once he's in there, you know, um, it's not as if I thought, Oh, there's a good opportunity for this. I, I, I wanted to challenge myself to, make it slightly more diverse and um, introduce something um, grave and substantial into the mix. And once he's in there, then I had this chance to do something with it. And the lottery is what you're talking about. And he's thinking about what if he had a, 
what if you got the first pick in the lottery, this, these ping pong, ping pong ball lottery picks? And so I don't know. It's a long passage. I think it's probably six or eight pages of just Derek thinking about how he would handle, would he pick Lawrence Taylor? Um, how would that look for a character of mixed race to pick Lawrence Taylor would be different than the standard, you know, white guy who picks Lawrence Taylor first and nobody thinks anything of it. When I was done, I realized I was trying to, in my own very, very small and insignificant way, I was trying to write something, I think, about white privilege, basically, that these guys don't have to think about the implications of choosing, of choosing a black linebacker who sacks Joe Theismann. But Derek has to think about it in ways that they, that they don't. So it's not a huge plot point, but it, the book is not plot-driven, so it gave me some material to, uh, to delve into. Yeah, and what is, it was interesting about it is I almost felt like it was uh, recently on Morning Joe and MSNBC, Michael Eric Dyson, I think is it Penn, was saying that if Hillary Clinton was elected president, she'd be able to do more about race than Barack Obama. And this is an African-American scholar saying this. He said, because every move she makes won't be analyzed. Right. You know, whereas, whereas President Obama, you know, as, I don't want to look like the angry black president, but yeah. yet I don't want to look like I'm trying to deny who I am. And I felt like in that, in those six or eight pages, you encapsulated, you encapsulated, I think, what, what it feels like, uh, race feels like probably on both sides of the equation in complex situations, you know, in our culture, in public and private life. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to make a grand claim that I've spoken well from, uh, you know, a uh, black perspective that, you know, but, um, you know, I think novelists uh, try to make that imaginative and empathetic leap. And if they, um, they, we, we should, we should be allowed to try. If we fail, we should be called for it, you know, but um, I, in a tiny, tiny, like I say, this is tiny and insignificant. It's not a grand historical novel but it's a tiny way of just trying to capture an awareness of race that a typical white person wouldn't walk around with the lottery for, for most of these men it, it, they're interested and it's fraught but it's not racially fraught and it's not um fraught in a way that goes to the center of their identity so uh yeah i gave it a shot and I, like i say i wanted to challenge myself somewhat do you, you teach undergrads both yeah both Undergrads, are great. do you? So your students are mostly, I would guess, younger significantly than the characters in the novel. Yeah. H have Have your students read your work? Um, not that I know of. I don't assign it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what you're doing wrong. I thought that's the joy of writing and being a professor. You assign your work. Yeah, I can sell some books, but um, so I mean, like a few here and there have come to me, but um you know, typical undergrad, and I was like this too, is not always completely aware of their professor's work. And yeah, I was thinking, because there's a guy who's chosen because they're a man down, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And he seems younger, you know, mm -hmm. th than, than the, the rest of the guys who participate. And this is, I guess, a spoiler alert, but because it's not incredibly plot-driven, I don't feel incredibly guilty. Right. But his reflections after participating in this play. And what's amazing is it is just one play. I mean, right. these, these guys get together for a whole weekend. They don't just, they don't like play, you know, an hour game of like flag football or ta even tackle that sure. they just do the one play and then that's it. Yeah. But this I guy, think. his reflections are fascinating because 
I want on one level, it seems like he feels lonelier after having participated in it. Mm-hmm. And that he could get a group of guys. And he could and yet his group of guys will be better. Right. <laughs> and they'll be in a better hotel. And so it's like it's interesting because it's like he's learned something from the participation and then yet learned maybe not even close to the most important lesson about the fragility. And maybe he can't learn it because of his age. Yeah. Um, my editor, Matt Weiland and Norton was really, was really helpful and smart about the ending. We went round and round and it, we, you know, we, I made some changes from the first draft and he was in that this guy you're talking about that they pick up the younger guy. He was in there, but he is more, he, his, it's more substantial part for him at the very end. And we were just interested in the ways that, in talking back and forth, we were both interested in the ways that ritual and tradition can be um, unhinged from their origins. You were saying that earlier, right? Yeah. And that if, if, if he carries on in some way, it's going to look a lot different, and he won't have a personal relationship with the play or a personal memory. It'll mean something different to him. It'll be meaningful, but it will be unhinged, unhooked from its, its origin. And you know, what was interesting to me about him is he, he's younger, thoroughly ironic kind of guy. It would be super easy for him to make fun, to take sly pictures, to post it on social media, to make fun of these old guys in their football uniforms. And I think at the end of the night, something happened to him. And again, he probably wouldn't be able to say it either. It's a, a sort of literary phenomenon. He's witnessed something. You see this with characters in a lot of no- novels and stories. They've witnessed something and they're different for it. And they can't maybe say what it is, but he, he saw something and he's chosen that night not to make fun of it, you know, and it's a choice because as the book explores as a kind of masculine um, stance where you make fun of a lot of things, you make fun of each other. It's, it can be a form of affection, but it would have been easy for him to make fun of these old guys. Well, thanks again for talking with us. And I encourage all our, our listeners uh, pick up the throwback special. It's a great book. Thank you very much, Scott. Chris, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Oh, really? It's been a pleasure. Back again on the Mockingcast are my friends, David Zoll in Virginia, Sarah Condon in Texas. David, not a big guy. Did you, I throw you off with the non-zeitgeist? I kind of... Uh, yeah, I was, I, was, I was waiting for it. I think Sarah was waiting for it, too. We didn't know what to do. Did you guys play baseball or softball as kids? Yeah, I was in Mississippi. I, I did a little bit. I was pretty bad. I was really bad, but I was good at thinking about it. So I threw like the change-up pitch, and you guys, that's okay. So sorry for the mild shaming, mm-hmm. but here we are. I got the animating force, the zeitgeist and our Texas star. Here we are at the Mockingcast one more time with you on Friday for your commute home or your Saturday breakfast or your late catch up Wednesday when you have a, a moment to breathe. And here we are. And I am not going to talk about anything superhero because I am talked out. So right away. <laughs> To another weekend. But Scott, 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 you forgot to mention what's happening in two weeks. Oh, in two weeks. Absolutely. There will be the Mockingbird Conference. 
uh, in New York City, uh, which is basically the best time you're going to have <laughs> at a religious or non-religious conference this year. Uh, so how much is registration, David? It's $150, which is we lose a significant amount of money on that because the meals alone with the alcohol are uh, worth it almost almost that amount. So, uh, man, I, I don't know how else to tell people to come outside of, you know, come. Trust me, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be better than uh, they have any idea that it could be. Um, and that sounds, uh, you know, <laughs> what is the blessing are those who have uh, not seen and still believe. So think about that as you. It's bad stewardship if you're on the fence. I mean, you just got to like, you're, <laughs> you're basically. You got to sell it, man. We're taking a loss. And, and those of you who were listening last week heard Matt Milner. I mean, he wandered into this conference. I mean. Sarah, you kind of stumbled into it. I mean, so many people. I did. I mean, I was like, I was in seminary. I've told this story before, but I was in seminary and I was ready to quit. And um, I was just tired. Everything I was hearing was making me more tired. And I was in the library and I was telling one of my buddies about it. And he only he's only ever come to one Mockingbird conference. He's this guy, Jesse Zink, who's done a ton of work um, in Africa with the Anglican Communion. Just a neat guy. And he's like, you should go to this Mockingbird conference. And I was like, why? And he's like, because you're never going to hear this stuff here <laughs> at the seminary. And and it changed my life. I mean, really and truly, like, it it changed my life. And two years ago, the first time I went to Mockingbird, it was uh, two days before Lindy and I were married. And we just, like, we did a very low-stress wedding. So, like, we came to New York just to hang out. And um, Francis Spufford was speaking and uh, he signed our book and he just was like, you're, you're here and you look so relaxed. And he wrote a very nice, it was very great. It was a great way to begin our life together. So oh, whether you're struggling with faith, whether, you know, you're struggling in seminary, whether you've had a weird artistic experience or whether you're getting married that weekend. Or whether you just want to eat some delicious food in a, a, yeah, a yeah. very odd, but incredibly cool um, uh, church context. Or you just want to dance at the Episcopo Disco with some music from the Ukraine. You know, every time you say Episcopo Disco, I think of Joe Piscopo, but it's actually the Episco Disco. <laughs> Episco Disco. I made it Episcopo. I mean, Scott, get it. You're the host here. Come on. Hey, I'm making it my own. <laughs> all right. So we'll see you all there. Please register. David, let's go to a film I admitted to you in private I have not seen. We're talking about American Psycho, is that right? Yes, it, it, we are. Well, you know, I haven't seen American Psycho for a while. The reason that uh, I flagged for a, it up... For a while, a, a little shaming. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Sarah, have you seen it? No, 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 no. Well, David what? hasn't seen it for a while. <laughs> what can I say? Um, You're like, it's, it's incarnational. You're kind of coming down to our level. I haven't seen it. For a while. <laughs> I mean, it's actually, it's actually uh, shameful itself. I, I don't, uh, the movie is, the movie's, I don't think anyone expected it to get nearly the amount of um, 
stature that it's gotten because that's what this uh, article that I flagged up was about how there is uh, American Psycho has become a musical that's opening on Broadway and when it came out it was sort of it was like uh, not unlike um, you know this uh, the Salman Rushdie uh, book it was Brett Easton Ellis was vilified for doing this kind of obscene book about a stockbroker who had absolutely no moral um, antenna and was just the, the he was he was um, I guess lampooning or caricaturing the soullessness of Wall Street, kind of the uh, other side of the Gordon Gecko thing. And uh, it, the movie is was directed – it's interesting because it's sort of a, the height of misogyny or that – it's a complicated book. But the movie was directed by a woman and um, – and it's an incredible film. It stars Christian Bale really in the role that probably – I mean he, he's that kid guy has been acting forever and a lot of people would say Newsies was the most important role he's ever been in. Uh, but before Batman, he was uh, Patrick Bateman uh, who's the lead character in American Psycho. And the New York Times just t- kind of looked into why it is we um, – why has this stood the test of time beyond the fact that Patrick Bateman in this 80s novel was obsessed with Donald Trump, like obsessed. He has mm-hmm. the art of the deal on his uh, like it, on his shelf. He keeps he's, his girlfriend ridicules him for being obsessed with Donald Trump. And we all know sort of how uh, that's uh, couldn't be more timely. But um, it's huge. <laughs> that's funny. The. um the article talks about basically how we've become so inured to violence that we've uh, we've uh, we appreciate violence now for its wit, for what's funny about it, in a way that uh, was not the case clearly in the 1980s. And they talk about the rise of sort of shooter games and and whatnot. But with um, you know, you look at like the most recent season of Fargo. You look at Breaking Bad. You look at a lot of these Sopranos whatever it is, this gruesome violence that has kind of become an art form, a means of satire. And what does that say about us as um, a society that all of a sudden Patrick Bateman has stuck around and is no longer has any shock value. He's become a meme. Does it say we like violence? (laughs) I guess it's uh, they try to the uh, New York Times tries to um, make it all into some point about the vulgarity of Donald Trump. But um, it, the Bateman's been around be- way before this presidential race. You know, he, he's he's people quote those lines to you all the time. And it, it ends. It turns out. I can't tell you how it ends. I, I can't even. I don't even feel like comfortable describing the book on uh, this podcast. So it's I was super creepy. I mean, you know, it's worth reading the article just to get. Like, I was like so validated that I've never seen the movie and never read the book. I was like, yeah, I can't even watch CSI. So there's no way, like, I'm gonna put myself through that. Sarah, even though you're um, super validated, I'll give you an extra validation. So you're super, super validated. Okay. Because I haven't, <laughs> I haven't seen either. So or yeah. I did like this assessment. The writer said, we've developed a taste for barbaric libertines with twinkling eyes and some zing in their tortured souls, which only made me think of the protagonist in Fifty Shades of Grey, which I have not read and have not seen. But it it sort of made me think about how, like, uh, humor becomes this vehicle for violence in American Psycho and sex becomes a vehicle for violence in Fifty Shades of Grey and it all makes violence either 
easier for easier for us to express or or more palatable or whatever but like all of these limits have been pushed in ways we wouldn't have imagined even 20 years ago right yeah it i think michael sansbury this very week on mockingbird he quoted gary shandling who died who said to that uh he he said that we were bottoming out as a culture <laughs> we're currently in the midst of bottoming out as a culture that's something uh you know um that sounds like a premature diagnosis because you never know. You never know how right. much further down it's going to go. Right, right. And, you know, the truth is Ellis's novel is, is uh, it has literary merit. You know, mm-hmm. it's a lot of these great books that we've banned in the past. You know, they've, they've come back to sort of be just ahead of their time in some way that actually uh, triggers the moral um, sensibility of, of human beings. But, yeah, I, I think um, he, he – he also has like this sort of uh, Aryan look to him in that, and very clean and um, wearing extremely well tailored suits. All the talk about what you're wearing and these, uh, the way that <clears throat> uh, Wall Street guys, the status symbols and how they were kind of carrying themselves in the '80s, it's, it actually carries a lot of weight today. Um, though I would like to think that. Uh, those people I know who work on Wall Street are not nearly as vacuous and essentially evil. Um, Do you as- feel like if you've like if American Psycho has made a musical, it, have you arrived, or <laughs> is it bad? like Spider Man the musical? Like it got it never really made it because it's like what do you do? Like Uncle Ben told me I need to be responsible. Oh no, Doc Ock, Mary Jane. Like on some level, like musical. I feel like the genre can only go so far. Right. Yeah, I would see the musical of American Psycho, for the record. Okay. I would see that, yeah. You know, because I don't know how they deal with nail guns and women there, but I, I imagine <laughs> it's easier. The musical so. the musical itself is definitely in ascendance right now with all these, like, televised things and Hamilton. I can't sure. believe if you told me that last year we would have had t- not one but two posts about the Hamilton musical on the website, I wouldn't have believed you. But yeah. so if so what American Psycho tells us about ourselves is that we're weird, which is basically the thrust <laughs> of this American Psycho review for from the New York Times. What does the twit think? What is her name? Twia? Uh, Tay and you. It's the Microsoft's uh, artificial intelligence bot that they unleashed on Twitter. I, th- I think that's how you say it. I tried to follow Tay and you, but now that I think a few days after this has all gone down, his, his, her, it's uh, whatever, it's tweets are protected. And so you have to be um, confirmed as, I guess, a living human being, not another bot, uh, in order to, to see what's going on currently with Tay and you. But what's going on with Tay and you, Scott? Well, basically, Microsoft, right, like, had an artificial intelligent twit bot that if you followed her or him or whatever it was, gender inclusive wise, or I, I mean, it seems female to me, but I don't want to step on anybody's toes. Political. It's definitely a girl. Yeah. It's definitely so it a girl. So it starts with like, yeah. hey, Britney Spears is cool. Hey, I hate that movie. To Hitler was right. And let's build the wall. I mean, like, it's, it's really, it, it got really racist and awful <laughs> and inflammatory. But the thing is, it learned from the people that followed it and tweeted it. Like, it just basically mirrored back to people <laughs> like it, it didn't have any creative like 
fun to draw from. It just basically was generating based on who tweeted it. I mean, what do you say? Have we learned nothing from science fiction? Because, you know, this is like the a lot of... By, by the way, David, yes, we've learned nothing from science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> There's a definitive answer there. Well, I mean, if we needed any more confirmation, we have Tay and you telling us that it raises the question of as artificial intelligence gets more and more uh, advanced, how are we going to basically filter out human nature when it comes to... Um, what it learns, what it picks up, how it adapts to organic uh, sinners. Over to Sarah on as a mom with two kids, what yeah. you what you learned about yourself parenting in the world from the new yorker comic strip yeah so there's this piece from mental floss called uh, changing parenting attitudes as seen through new yorker cartoons um and some indiana university sociologists uh examine cultural feelings about parenting through cartoons from the new yorker from 1925 to 2006 and i was I thought this was such an interesting piece. I mean, it's bleak for sure. Uh, people used to have uh, cartoons they would read in the New Yorker about children that were sort of positive and would talk about the virtuous things their kids did. And then it, things just got worse and worse. And they, it sounded like things started to get worse in the 1920s, which was kind of fascinating to think about um, decline in the in the Great Depression. But one of the things I pulled out that I was struck by is um, so almost 18 percent of all the jokes in all of these cartoons poked fun at the cost of having children, most of them from either the beginning of the New Yorker's run or its most recent issues. So this is one. Darling, here's the bill from the hospital. One more installment in the baby's R's, which was from 1928. I love that. But the oh, 1996 man. one is brutal. It says, your mother and I think it's time for you got a place of your own. We'd like a little alone time before we die. Um, and I mean, I, I for me, that's like the total that's the total difference in parenting right now. It's like there's a there's an Instagram account that I follow that's hugely popular. I don't know, David, if you've seen this, but it's called uh, Asshole Parents. So it's like hashtag asshole parent and it'll say stuff so you'll like you'll post a picture of your kid in the middle of a fit and you'll write something underneath like um gave her the pink bowl and she wanted the blue bowl that's why i'm a hashtag asshole parent i'm glad there's not one of those for spouses right <laughs> oh, i mean it's just so, wait tay and you is yeah. got it coming <laughs> it's so it's just so dark it's like this I hey, don't know. wait, wait, can you guys, can you guys hang on a second? I'm talking yeah. to your spouses right now with video cameras. <laughs> it's just, it, it, it's that picture of things are getting, um, children are a burden and children are maybe more difficult than we thought they would be. And so less and less people are having children, you know, that's sort of the conclusion the article draws, but I just think it's sad. I mean, kids are so amazing and you know, for Josh and I, it took us a long time to get pregnant. And so they're just so precious to us that we even have them. And 
it makes me sad that this is this is how we're all sort of feeling culturally. And I get it. They're hard and they're exhaustive. We just got back from like the worst vacation ever because of our kids in, in some large part, but not because they're awful. It's just because they're kids, you know? So like you, you can't like drink and, you know, Sarah, didn't you go to some restaurants. like cool frontier museum though? We did. We went to this awesome, it's the best museum. If you have to go on a vacation and bring small children, there is a museum called the Buckhorn in San Antonio, Texas. And to make everyone feel better about the fact that they have at least two taxidermied polar bears, um, the museum is like 100 years old. So most of the taxidermy is really old. But it's, So it's all taxidermy, which the kids love, and there's a bar. So <laughs> that's, your, that's your mockingbird parenting tip for the week. Go to the San Antonio Buckhorn Museum yeah. with your kids. And can't you picture Mary and Joseph being like, gosh, we were like in for this religious pilgrimage. We thought we'd catch a few drinks, which we did. But then like... A couple of days later, we realized this little jerk Jesus was like back at the temple and ruined all of them. We're, we're going to stop it at Bethany. Right. Uh, it's interesting. Right. Carl Bart in uh, Church Dogmatics 3-4, which is, oh, I'm geeking out, which I don't usually do, at least not in these things. But he's, he talks about like if the child has been born, like everybody before the, the Messianic birth has to have kids at least beca- or try because maybe we're going to have the child. That will be the deliverer. But after the child's been born, why do you have parent, ch- children anymore? And he says, basically, it's to bear witness to the fact that this world is not God forsaken. That, that in Christian parenting, after the child's been born, that you're showing that this world is, there's no place that's God forsaken. Uh, and, that, and that you can rear up children as witnesses to God's reconciling grace. Wow. Mm. Look at you, Scott. That's beautiful. That's amazing. I read a little in seminary, not much. That's amazing. That's that's really powerful, man. That that sort of redeems uh, the cultural bottoming out that we began this episode by talking about. Now on to the Episcopalian hour because we had a little a little uh, article from I think it was a review of Simon Gaber Gabercoli mm, something like that Simon yeah. from Fleming Rutledge basically Fleming Rutledge who writes a lot of great stuff that I haven't read enough of but she's kind of defending substitutionary atonement which some days. Felt like in the early 80s, like some days today, it feels like in the early 80s, defending clubbing baby seals. I mean, it, there are all <laughs> kinds of people from every theological uh, point in the spectrum that are just almost have this reactionary, like, you know, guttural ugh, to this doctrine. So, but, but Fleming Routledge, who is an Angl- Episcopal clergy woman, and she actually offers a very articulate defense of it and why it's important. She does. And I would really recommend, just as a side note, her new book is amazing. Um, the Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ is amazing. And I'm just, as a personal note, so stoked that a woman wrote it. Like, it's so good. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Substitutionary Atonement was like the thing no one was allowed to 
like be a fan of in seminary. So I found this article pretty refreshing, you know. Yeah, I I was listening to something. It actually came up this morning because I was listening to a podcast interview with Richard Rohr, who I I like a lot, you know. And there's mm-hmm. so much great stuff, and we've been joking all about the Enneagram recently. But um, and he was sort of trashing substitutionary atonement, talking about it as infantile, and uh, I it, it struck me as as just short sighted and and naive. Not only because you have to kind of take out you have to sort of ignore a lot of hebrews and romans and right. and just kind of say you know it it doesn't have to be the absolute only you know i, I had a, i preached last week on good friday and I, I sort of emphasized more the kind of unconditional love aspect that we uh we we kind of put jesus on the cross uh, and he refuses to retaliate and that sort of that that degree to which he is going to be vulnerable that degree to which he is going to suffer our um our fear and our hate mongering but i don't see how that is not uh can't coexist with the idea that god dies in our place i mean any any film any movie uh that deals with these themes just kind of makes everyone cry and all of a sudden but the second it becomes theological it becomes about god beating his his child beating as though jesus had no agency in it and there's no sort of sense of self-sacrifice or it i i find it to be a very fashionable um and unfortunate um uh, critique uh, right now that everyone's on board and a lot of people that i think very highly of sort of dismiss substitutionary atonement, but it, man, it preaches. I mean, if you've talked to someone who really has done something bad and really knows that there's a consequence to that action, that they can't sort of just wave a magic wand and it be gone. The idea that there's, that blood is, is shed, that, uh, that they, someone goes in the dock for them. I mean, that, that's not the only, that's not the only thing that goes on in the cross, but it, why it can't be one of the things that goes on is more about human limitation than God. I, I find it to be I, – I love substitutionary atonement as much as a person can love something like that. Uh, I, think it, I think it really speaks to the human heart and that we, if we lose it, we lose a lot because something happened on that cross and you cannot get away from it. It wasn't just a, an illustration. It wasn't just a um, – you know, Jesus being pushed to the edge. I mean, we believe that the temple was, you know, that the curtain was torn in two. Something actually occurred and you can't really reduce it. I'm sorry, here I am preaching, but I, I got to No, no, no. It's great. I, I, just, I think it's super. <laughs> Did it. I think it's super prideful when people are like, Bleh, substitutionary atonement. Like, I don't, I, it's like when we read, um, I'm like totally going to alienate everyone I went to seminary with. We went, we read John Stott's Cross of Christ and, um, and I was, and it's the only thing I read in seminary like that. And I was like, this is amazing. And it was right as like, I was starting to read Mockingbird stuff. And I'm like, we're talking about the cross in this way that like, I just hadn't heard before. And one of my uh, seminary uh, classmates said to the professor, you know, it's cool that we read this. I read this when I first became a Christian, but I'm kind of over it now. Like I'm over this whole cross thing. And I remember thinking, like, unless you built one in your backyard and you climbed up on it, like, how are you over it? Like, I just like I just think this is I don't know. I'm pretty aggressive about this, though, and I'll own that because I I feel like this is what saved me. I mean, I am that person like this is the stuff that saved me. So when people just negate it, it you you win the world, Uh, Like you win the world. 
I, I me in the world. It's interesting. Mostly me. What you were saying, David, about like every, it, whether it's Les Miserables or uh, any contemporary blockbuster or The Tale of Two Cities, it, it's a far greater thing than I do. Or Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, where Spock <laughs> at the end lays his life down for the crew. And at the end, Kirk's like, why would you do this? He says, because the needs uh, of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. But then they all risk their careers in the next movie to go resurrect Spock, which is, I think this is the big critique today, right? It'll lead to bad social ethics. And when Spock's kind of brought back to life, he says, why? It's illogical. Why would you do this? And they say, because the needs of the few or the one outweigh the needs of the many. And I think that this is like what Jesus is and all the parables about the 99 sheep and the lost coin that actually, if you really grasp this, you'll be the most radical advocate for the marginalized, not a parsimonious. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah, One it, more Episcopal uh, lesson I need to learn from you all. Our church is moving to the lectionary, which it's a big move for us. We're, awesome. uh, you know, non-denominational kind of people. So this week, we have a link to how do you preach this lection. Look at me. I'm learning Episcopalian. The lection. Uh, about Thomas, right? Tom, we have Thomas, who uh, is always labeled Doubting Thomas. So how do we, uh, for the Episcopalian or other mainline-ish or lectionary, non-mainline-ish people that are following a prescribed set of Bible readings, not picking it, you know, on their own, this is what they've got. What do we do with it? Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do with it. I mean, Sarah, if, if you have any gut reactions, I, I have to preach. Hey, wait, let me get week. a pen. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just get ready for the incredible drip, drippings the of genius that are about to kind of occur. <laughs> I, I've, I've preached a lot. I've preached about doubt before. And, you know, one, one way to go is to sort of, uh, I think you disentangle doubt and faith, you know, that, that sort of weird, uh, cultural misunderstanding that you, people who have faith are, don't, are, don't have doubt that somehow faith equals certainty when that's just hogwash. And, you know, that, that in fact, to anyone you talk to who has faith is just full of doubt and that they're, they're very much, they live together. The, the opposite of uh, faith is control, not, um, mm. not doubt. What's spoken to me because I, I led this uh, Bible study this week is at the end. I mean, it, it ends when Jesus says, uh, you know, blessed are those, um, you know, who've, who've seen and believed, but even more, you know, I'm paraphrasing those who haven't seen and yet still believe. Mm. And I mean, there's only one way for me to read that. It's the same as him saying, yeah, you have little faith after he, you know, calms the storm. It is, you should be able to believe without having seen. That is the law. You believe, mm. believe fully and believe without just on, on completely on faith. But that, that's the law. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the wounded Christ going to the man who cannot believe and giving him the gift of faith. I mean, it's, it's uh, that's how I see it this week. It's like uh, because if I if if faith becomes about sort of believing enough, you know, like just just believe harder this week and stop and quiet your doubts. I mean, that is the law, and that's like you know, and the disciples over and over again uh, don't have enough faith to you know walk on the water to calm the storms, and Jesus mm -hmm. is continually chastising them. He's continually chastising them, but he's also continually calming the storm and going to Thomas. So it's like you have 
you have the injunction on the one hand, and then you have uh, the gospel, which is the gracious act of the wounded, still wounded Christ. And that's so interesting too, you know, that he was raised and that's, and he's, he's still got, he's not, his glorified body includes these uh, marks of suffering, which is not what, what you would naturally put together from a Hollywood perspective, I don't think. What fascinates me is that Thomas, for some reason or another, wasn't there with the rest of the crew when there was this experience. And he still shows up. James Charlesworth from Princeton, who's a historical Jesus guy, wrote a book about this, actually arguing that Thomas was the beloved disciple and that his observance kept him out of the tomb. Actually, his observance of the law kept, because he's like abstaining from meeting with everybody because he'd be ritually unclean because he ran it. I I mean, I think you could read that either way, but I think for whatever, like Sunday, Easter Sunday is when you're most likely to get visitors, right? Uh, The week after Easter is where the people that, if they were going to go to church because they're alienated with vestry members or somebody in the elder board, and they think that like, did this can just never be the same. I mean, Something about Thomas, like, why do we call them doubting Thomas? Why not believing Thomas? Like, in some sense, like, why not, like, uh, graced Thomas that went in an awkward situation because he believed that the grace he met uh, in the historical Jesus could maybe, the rumor, like, was lingering that the risen Jesus would give him that same kind of peace. And so, like, whether you're the person that's praying for someone that, you'd love to come back to the fellowship or whether you're listening here, like, and you're like, Hey, I just don't know that I could ever go back. Like the same Jesus, uh, the resurrected Jesus, right. With scars to meet our scars, you know, says my peace, I give to you. Yeah. That, that word peace is a, what a word, man. And that, 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 that's what he really comes to bring to these guys who have just been cowardly and um, uh, faithless. And to whom Twia mirrors that were faithless at our best days. Well, thank you all for recording this and uh, peace to you on your journeys this weekend, your preaching, your journeys, your life. And um, we'll see everybody next week in Easter Tide. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Mockingcast. As always, you can find all the content we reference on our website, mbird.com. And we love mail. So if you have thoughts uh, about the podcast and you'd like to share them, please just email us at info at mbird.com. And if you like what you heard, please stop by iTunes to give us a rating and a review. Have a great weekend. And we'll see you next week.